You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. A year ago, uh, just something really hard happened to the United States. Something really hard happened in my life, and some of you can bear witness um, with me in this, and that was that uh, the series 24 ended. And it's brutal. Brutal. So no one, no one here. <laughs> but uh, this uh, one of my favorite shows for quite a while always started out with um, Kiefer Sutherland, you know, Jack Bauer, this anti-terrorist guy saying, "Previously on 24," you know, and then it would give a recap of the show that week, the week before. And uh, you know, here we are in the Book of Acts, and you can almost hear Kiefer saying, "Previously in the Book of Acts," you know, the the saga continues. I mean, the the drama of Paul's life. Uh, continues as he's on trial, uh, his life is at stake, and he's you know really standing up, hazarding his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you know it's just been an exciting book. We're a couple chapters from the end, and yet the the drama continues as um, we're in chapter twenty five. Now chapter twenty five is kind of a a quick segue into chapter 26. So I'm just going to give you an overview of it, and then we'll get into chapter 26. But Paul has been in Caesarea uh, for two years now. He was arrested in Jerusalem by the Jews. He was beaten by the Jews, but the Romans came in, they intervened, and really separated Paul from the Jews. But the Jews wanted to kill Paul. They wanted justice. They wanted to charge him according to their religious laws, what they felt was blasphemy. blasphemy. And so uh, the Roman government felt, man, we got to get Paul out of Jerusalem. We got to get him to safety where he can have a safe trial. And so 472 armed soldiers made up of cavalrymen, spearmen, and uh, and infantry take Paul 70 miles northwest to a Mediterranean town called Caesarea. Paul uh, there was tried by the Jews, by their lawyer Tertullius, um, in front of the Roman procurator Felix. And, uh, and then Felix basically kept bringing Paul in to, d- to discuss the gospel, to hear him concerning faith in Christ. At one point, Felix had his, uh, his wife just known to be a sinful woman, Felix known to be a sinful man, and they sat before Paul and, and Paul preached the gospel to them. In fact, in the last chapter that we studied, chapter 24, Paul reasoned with Felix and Drusilla concerning righteousness self-control, and the judgment to come. And the message was so powerful that Felix began to shake. And, and you know, the Holy Spirit was just convicting him. And instead of being broken before the Lord and before Paul and confessing his sin and, and repenting and being saved, he procrastinated and put off repentance to a latter time. In fact, we have no history of him ever repenting. Well, it says that Felix kept Paul for two years and would occasionally bring him in to talk to him, but really he just kind of held him as ransom. He wanted to get some money from Paul. Eventually, Caesar uh, got rid of Felix, and Felix was succeeded. In chapter 24, verse 27, we read that uh, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. 
And uh, Festus had a little bit more of a level head on his shoulders. He was raised in a silver spoon family. I mean, after all, who names their kid Portia? You know, it's the same people that name their kid Ferrari and all of those things. But um, just this, you know, he, he wasn't a slave like Felix once was. And so it's easy to get these two characters confused. You know, you got Felix and Festus and they sound like, you know, cartoon characters, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but uh, two different Roman governors is who these guys are. And at this point in history, Festus is that governor. Well, when Festus came into office, he went down to Jerusalem to kind of get his orientation of the, of the Judean wilderness, of the countryside, of the people. And the same Jews that had it out for Paul a couple chapters ago met with Festus and said, hey, there's this guy in prison in Caesarea. His name's Paul, and we hate this guy. And look, we're not going to sugarcoat what we want to do at all. In fact, by the way, this is paraphrased. <laughs> um, we're not going to sugarcoat what we want to do at all. We want you to bring Paul back to Jerusalem, and on the way, we're going to ambush him and kill him. And Festus was just, praise the Lord, had a head on his shoulders and said, man, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> you know? And he said, if you guys want to try Paul, he's up in Caesarea. I'm going back in a couple days. You're welcome to come. And so when Festus gets back to Caesarea, he hears Paul and Paul just basically says, man, let's be real. I'm being held here because I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And, uh, and Festus didn't know what to do. He wanted to please the Jews. And so he says, hey, Paul, you know, you're kind of being accused for Jewish stuff, not Roman stuff. So what do you say we go back to Jerusalem for you to be tried? And Paul, being a Roman citizen, said, I appeal to Caesar. He says, I'm not going back to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me down there. I appeal to Caesar. And man, when a Roman citizen did that, that meant it's time for some due process. Okay, so Festus is in a bit of a predicament because he's got Paul who's being accused of Jewish stuff. He hasn't done anything wrong against Rome. And now he's going to go be seen before Caesar and Festus doesn't know what to charge this guy for. That's a big deal. Luckily for Festus, King Herod comes to town and King Herod comes with Bernice, his girlfriend, and uh, and Festus shares his problem. Look, Herod, I've got this guy. I don't know what to charge him for. He's appealed to Caesar. I want to please the Jews. I mean, if I don't please the Jews, there's going to be riots all the time. What do I do? And Herod Agrippa said, man, I'll help you out. Tomorrow, I want to hear what Paul has to say. And so that brings us to chapter 26, where Paul gives his defense and speaks before Herod Agrippa. Now, before we do, or before he does, you can read that... Um, Verse 23, you can read of the day that Agrippa and Bernice come into the stadium. And uh, real quick, who is this Herod? He's Herod Agrippa II, okay? He's the great-grandson of the Herod who sought to kill Jesus at his birth. So he's got this wicked, wicked great-grandpa who killed all the male children, two years old and under, in Bethlehem and her districts. You guys know the story, the Christmas story. His great uncle is Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist because John the Baptist confronted him on an affair he had with his, his uh, brother's wife. Okay? Uh, so his great uncle is very wicked. His dad is Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I, we've read about in Acts, he uh, killed James, the brother of John, 
And he also sought to have Peter killed. And he's the Herod that stood, um, actually in this very auditorium, I'm going to explain in a second. He stood on the stage below and accepted a lot of praise and glory from men when an angel bonked him on the head, knocked him out cold, and then a whole bunch of worms ate his body right there on the spot in front of a whole bunch of people. You guys remember that story from the book of Acts. So that is this Herod's dad. So a real wicked family full of a lot of um, adultery, full of a lot of, you know, um, extortion, full of a lot of murder, full of a lot of immorality. In fact, this Herod we read of today had a sister whose name was Drusilla. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Drusilla was Felix's wife. We know, did a whole study on how immoral Drusilla was as well as Felix. One more thing. We're getting the family tree out. You guys like that? One more little branch on the family tree. This Herod had another sister, and her name was Bernice. Yeah. So we've got an incestuous, wicked, immoral relationship going on between this Herod and his, his, you know, his wife that he has now, this Bernice. And now they come and they stand before Paul the Apostle. And so we read here in verse 23 that Agrippa and Bernice came into this Colosseum with great pomp. And they entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At Festus's command, Paul was brought in. Now, an interesting thing that, that helps you picture all of this is that in 1953... A guy was just kind of cleaning up the Mediterranean beach, sweeping around. And as he sweeps, sweeping up cigarettes and all of that, he came across a rock. And so he began to sweep around the rock and he noticed this rock was attached to another rock. This rock looked pretty ancient. And so he began to sweep around a little more and he went and got a shovel and he started kind of digging and noticed that this stone was connected to another stone, which was connected to another stone, began to dig and dig and bring some friends in. And they began digging and digging and digging. And as they dug and as they swept, guess what they found? A whole entire auditorium, a whole entire um, spectacular um, amphitheater. Now, a beautiful thing about this amphitheater, it's this historic Roman amphitheater where Herod was struck by the angel and eaten alive by worms. It's where Paul stood before Felix, Festus, and Herod Agrippa. And it's beautiful because the original uh, stones are still there on the stage. The same stones that Herod was eaten on, the same stones that Paul stood in chains and gave his defense. And another beautiful thing about it, when you're looking straight at all of the seats, I've been there twice. It's one of my favorite stops in Israel. There's a, a, a special seating box right in the middle of the amphitheater. And it's where the royalty would sit. It's where the governors would sit. It's where Felix, Festus, and Herod, and Bernice, and Drusilla, it's where they sat while Paul spoke. And an amazing thing took place. You see, before 1953, when this excavation took place, people, skeptics, would mock the idea that there was Pontius Pilate, that he had ever existed. And so that, you know, skeptics looking for any reason to explain away Jesus would say, we have no record of a Pontius Pilate governing the area of Judea. Therefore, how could Jesus have ever stood before him? This is just all cracks in you Christians, you know, doctrines and beliefs. 
But during this period, while they're excavating, within that box where the kings would sit, they found a seat. And on that seat is a stone. And on that stone was inscripted Pontius Pilate. And so to this day, that stone sits in the Museum of History in Jerusalem, you know, and it's a proof of the validity of the scriptures. Now, I just, I love history. Some people not so much. I love history. So to stand there in the museum, to look at the stone, to stand on the stage and to be like, Paul stood here, to go underneath the stage where the prisoners were kept and to say, Paul was kept here. The very special thing to me. Nowadays, um, jazz concerts are still done here in the auditorium, theater and drama. And it's, it's, you know, beautiful backdrop of the Mediterranean Sea. And so today, if you could just go there, will you go there to Caesarea you hear the pomp, you hear the music, you hear just this, you know, kind of overdone display as Herod and as Bernice and as all of their great men that they have around them come in and they sit down and then Paul is brought out in his tattered clothes and his chains as he'd been a prisoner for two years. So Paul is brought out. And in verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us. You see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he'd committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that under the examination... After the examination's taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and you can almost hear the chains clanking together. And he answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. You know, Paul knew that Herod was actually half Jewish. And that was actually common with all of the, the, the uh, Herods. They had Jewish blood in them. And so uh, he knew, hey, I'm being accused of things concerning the Jewish writings, the prophets, concerning the Messiah, concerning the resurrection of the dead. And Herod, I'm glad you're here because you have a Jewish background as well. You'll be able to attest the things that, that I say. You'll be able to, to uh, confirm the things that I say. And so he begins at the beginning of his life. You, be, you know, hear me patiently. I feel like that sometimes. Would you guys just hear me patiently? Paul had to say it too. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain for this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. 
And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so Paul says, you know, I was raised in Jerusalem. I went to school in Jerusalem. Anyone who's a Jew in Jerusalem knew me. I was Saul of Tarsus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. And he starts out his, his, you know, his speech before Herod by saying, look, everyone knew that I was a good Jewish boy. You read about it in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, man, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel. When was the last time you referred to your uh, heritage or your family tree as stock? You know, part of the Rogers stock. You know, it started out with Grandpa Buck, you know. And then as you go down the family tree, it just gets worse. No, <laughs> just kidding. It's great, you know. But we don't refer to ourselves as stock, do we? You know, but man, the Jewish blood, that was something that clear back to Father Abraham. I can trace my lineage. It's a special thing. And so, man, I was circumcised the day I was supposed to be circumcised. I can trace my roots back to the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisee's job was to do nothing but keep the 613 commandments. So concerning the law, man, my job was to keep the commandments. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He says, man, if there was a Jew in Israel who could boast about lineage or education or zeal or, man, I was that guy. To jump ahead a little bit, listen to what happened in him where he says, but all of these things that I count as gain, these things that I would be prideful about, I count them loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I might attain the resurrection from the dead. You see in Philippians chapter three, it's just beautiful because he says, man, if there's anyone that could boast about being a Jew, it was me. And yet you want to know how awesome Jesus is. Jesus is so awesome that everything I once held dear, it's like a pile of trash. It's like a pile of garbage. It's like a pile of dung. If I could just know Jesus, that is so much better than everything I had and everything I had earned to just know Jesus, to even get to be part of suffering with him. It would all be worth it. That is how great he is. Oh man, that I might just attain the resurrection of the dead. But Paul, he starts out talking to Herod, Herod. You know the Jews that are accusing me? You know the Pharisees kind of hiding behind, you know, their lawyers and stuff in Jerusalem? I was just like them. I was a Pharisee. I was zealous. So much so that I persecuted the church. You know what they're doing to me right now and wanting to kill me and ambush me? I used to do to Christians too. 
I used to drag them out of their houses. I used to drag them out of their synagogues. I used to say, kill them and stone them. I was responsible for murdering Christians. So Herod, why am I here today? Why, why am I being accused by the guys I used to be like? Because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because I've had an encounter with the risen Jesus. And Herod, you're half Jewish, man. Why would it be a strange thing to even talk about the resurrection of the dead? You know it's not. You know it's not weird for me to be preaching that the Messiah died and rose from the dead. So why am I here today? Well, he gets into it. Verse 12. While I was thus occupied persecuting Christians... As I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. Paul's conversion experience is spoken of multiple times in the book of Acts, but this conversion experience, this story, this account, gives us a little more insight into what Jesus told to Paul. We know that a great light shone, you know, that it was brighter than the noonday sun. And what was that light? It was the glory of Jesus Christ. And it was at that moment that as Paul stood before the all-revealing light of the holiness and glory of Jesus Christ, that he had his heart revealed. And he saw that his righteousness... And his stock, in his bloodline, and his keeping of the law the best that he could, on his best day, was like filthy rags heaped up in a pile on the floor compared to the one whom he saw shining down on him that day. And Paul had to say, who are you, Lord? Whoever you are, you're Lord. Whoever you are, you are God. So Paul sees the glory of the Lord. And when all verse 14 had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Remember, when the church is persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. When my wife is mocked and, you know, you know ridiculed, if someone were to hit my wife, They'd be hitting me. You don't want to mess with my wife because you'd be messing with me. In the same way, you don't mess with the church because she is the bride of Christ. And he is zealous for his bride. He bought her with his own blood. And he says, Saul, you're persecuting me. And then he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? What is this foreign language? It means that the Holy Spirit had been convicting Paul every time he drug a mom and her kid and her husband out of a house and into jail, every time he stoned a Christian or murdered a Christian, the Holy Spirit was convicting him oh so heavily that it was wrong. So much so that God likens it to goading a cow or, or an animal, you know, some livestock. You know, the goad is a sharp prodding stick that you would use to, to push an animal along. You know, being raised on a cattle ranch, we used our own form of a goad called a hot shot. You know, and you can have a lot of fun with the hot shot, zapping animals and zapping dogs and zapping your buddy who's like, you know, we'd zap each other, okay? Doesn't feel real great. 
But back in the day, they had more of these sharp sticks and poke and get up, get up into the chute, you know, get up, move along, move along. And if you've worked around cattle much, you know that you, you can start irritating them and they'll start kicking back at you. They'll start kicking and they'll kick with some good force. Man, if you aim that stick right at that kick, aim the stick at the kick, you know, uh, that animal begins to bleed. That animal begins to be wounded by the goad. And some of those animals, they're so, you know, they're so strong-willed. They'll fight you. They won't go forward. There's a lot of prodding that takes place. And Paul was like that strong-willed animal. Saul, what are you doing? You're persecuting the church. What are you doing? You know the prophets. You know all that spoke of the resurrection concerning me. You know the, the prophecies concerning the suffering servant. You know the prophecies of the donkey and I ride in on him. You know, you know all those prophecies. What are you doing persecuting the church? Until finally there was a goad blow that was too much for Paul. It was the Damascus Road encounter. It's hard for you to resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit, isn't it, Saul? In verse 15, so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you've seen and of the things that I will yet reveal to you. Yesterday, I was trying to rent a U-Haul trailer over in Corvallis, was going to bring some trees back for my yard. And as I was sitting there in the long line, I got my phone out and I started reading a Spurgeon sermon on this section. And I only got about five paragraphs in. And one thing that Spurgeon was just so impressed by in this chapter was that the holy God of Israel, who is so right who is so pure, who loves his church so much, who hates evil so much, would take the time and go out of his way for an encounter like this with Paul. Paul, someone who hated the church, someone who was enraged against the church. In fact, if you look back in chapter 26, verse 11, it says, in every synagogue, I compelled them to blaspheme and I was exceedingly enraged against them. Have you ever experienced rage, just the gritting of your teeth and the wanting to throw something in the... uh, That was Paul against Jesus and against the church. Why would Jesus ever give Paul a second glance? Why wouldn't Jesus just crush that dude and move on? Well, Paul writes a little bit later in the epistles that he sorrowed so much for that season in his life when he was killing Christians. For the rest of his life, he carried that with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and in 2 Timothy, he'll write about how, man, I am the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But then he says this, but when God saved me, he saved me that I could be an example and a pattern to all of those who would follow after Jesus from this point on. In other words, if God can save Paul and show mercy on Paul, or rather Saul of Tarsus, the Christian murderer, then God can have mercy and grace and love and compassion on anybody, on a Saddam Hussein, on an Osama bin Laden, on an Adolf Hitler, on a Joseph Stalin, on a Rory Rogers, because we are all in the same category His mercy and his grace is so deep and so wide. And I'm thankful that Jesus gave Paul a second chance. 
I'm so thankful he gave him a passing glance. And as he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, we see in verse 16 that from the very first day that Paul was saved, God spoke into Paul's life purpose. And so from this point on today in our study, we're going to look at the two purposes that God has for you from the day that you're saved, from the day you become a Christian. And then off of that, we're going to see five fruits of those purposes being fulfilled. Okay, so let's start out with these two purposes. Okay, in verse 16, you see that word that I have a purpose for you, Paul. And God has a purpose in mind for us as well. Not one of us is made exactly like the other. We all have different giftings and dreams and passions, talents. We all have different hearts. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, right after the, for by grace you've been saved passion, or verse, excuse me, um, right after that verse there, we're told by Paul that we are his workmanship. Can you guys say that? We are his workmanship. Ready? We are his workmanship. Then he goes on to say, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Now, the reason I had you say, I wanted to hear you vocalize that word workmanship because it's a beautiful word in the Greek. It's poema. Okay, so everyone say poema. Poema. What English word is that? Poem. So we are his poem created in Christ Jesus for good works. Where's poem? Man, every single one of us, the day that we get saved, the day that Jesus transforms us from being sinners to being sons, that day we are a blank sheet of paper and he gets to work writing a masterpiece. We are a blank canvas and he's got an easel full of different colors and he just starts in on us. Every single one of us has a purpose. Every single one of us is a poem. We are his workmanship and he has prepared works beforehand that we would walk in them. He knew the purpose he had for Paul and he knows the purpose he has for you and for me. And the things we're going to read here in verse 16, we're going to find We have the same purpose that Paul did. It's okay to struggle with what purpose God has in our life. And there's so much that times of waiting on the Lord and times being with him, God's going to reveal those those things to us. It's kind of progressive over time. But I want to show you two things that from the day you were saved, God had purpose for you. And number one, from the day Paul was saved in verse 16, it says, if you kind of hit to the middle of the verse, For this purpose, to make you a minister. From the day Paul was saved, he was called to be a minister. From the day that you were saved, you are called to be a minister. Well, I don't know, Rory. I don't know how I'd look in some clerical collar, you know, or some priestly robe. You know, that's what we think of minister so often. You have to be on staff, a paid position at a church or something like that. But really the word minister means servant. We have it so backwards within the church that the, that the pastor is some kind of a special guy that everyone needs to like bow down to and bring me an ice cold glass of grape juice and a goblet or something, you know? And that's just what America is told. But man, rather, 
A minister is a servant. We're to follow after Jesus who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What I love about the word servant in the Greek is that it literally means under rower. What does that mean? It speaks of one of those galley ships that had slaves in the bottom deck. And those slaves were down there specifically to oar. And, you know, there was the master of the boat and he sat there with his big drum and he drummed and everyone was supposed to row on cue, you know. And those slaves, they just, man, they were down there and they were sweating. And if you've ever seen Ben-Hur, you know what we're talking about. You know, just, just row. Your whole purpose in life, it's just to row. Nobody sees these guys. They don't get any special rewards or special treatment. They're not like brought up for a thank you ceremony when they finally come into port. Nothing. These guys are in the bottom. They're not seen. They're not appreciated. They're just down there to work. But I'll tell you what, that ship would not move without the faithful under rower. Every church has its under rowers, has its ministers, has those people that You might not be a worship leader and people get to see you. You might not, you know, get to um, have any sort of accolades or pat on the backs. But I'll tell you what, if you're serving in this church in the capacities that are unseen, you're an under rower, you're a toilet cleaner, you're a guy that stocks the toilet paper, you're a guy that gets the mirrors, you know, polished bright, you're the guy that pulls the weeds out front and shovels snow in the wintertime, you're the one that stacks chairs and gets the melted wax off the chairs from those candles on the wall, you know, you do these things when no one's here and you're just content to just love Jesus with your life and to pour yourself out. You're an under rower. And I'll tell you what, the ship wouldn't move without you. For those of you that serve faithfully in the children's ministry, you know, or at the Oasis, you know, you're never going to get applause and accolades. But I'll tell you what, the Lord is not unjust to forget your labor of love. He remembers your labor of love. You will receive a reward on that day. And you know what? I think that the under rowers are going to get so much more of a reward than, you know, the pastor that is up front every week. I think the people that faithfully are at the prayer meeting on Thursday night and just regularly faithfully pray and and pull the the oar of prayer, man, they're going to get so much more of a reward in heaven than I ever will. So thankful for the under rowers. But you know what? If you're a Christian from the day you were saved, you were called to be an under rower. You know, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That you should go and bear fruit. That you should serve. That you should have works just dripping off of your life. Works of service. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, if you could flip over there, um, because it's kind of a, a lengthy section. Ephesians 4.11 says that he himself gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. You know, there's this wrong understanding, especially in the American church, that the pastor or the elders, those are the guys that do the ministry in the church. And that is wrong. That is unbiblical. Okay? The role of the pastors and the apostles and the prophets and the teachers 
is to equip the saints so that we all can do the ministry together, so that we all can serve, that we all can fulfill the part that we have in the body of Christ. For the edification of the body, it says, so that the body would be built up. When does a church grow? When does a church move? A church grows and a church has movements when the people within the church are building it up. When the people within the church are rowing it along. And there in verse 13 of Ephesians 4, it says, Until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I know that he goes on, but listen, isn't that exciting that you all and we all, as we all are serving together the body of Christ, we all have a part in the maturing of the saints and the building up of the church. We all have a part in the man of God maturing and becoming that stature of the fullness of Christ. We all have a part in verse 14 that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who's the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working in which Every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And as we are fulfilling that purpose, the church grows. Man, as we're counting the cost of ministry and, and, you know, serving on the Wednesday nights to help Lindsay out so that, you know, she's not the only one doing her share, but all of us are doing our share in the children's ministry on Wednesday nights. I'm sure that not one guy's, you know, uh, scrubbing the, the toilets or, you know, cleaning out the copy machine or whatever. There's so many needs within the church, but the, we're all doing it. That's how the church moves. It's how the church grows. It's how the church matures. Every part doing their share. We need to get away from the idea that the pastor does everything in the church. God wants to use us in ministry. He wants to use you in ministry from the first day you're saved. And so today, later on, as we worship, as we pray, just make yourself available to the Lord. I ask you right now, how are you serving the church? How are you serving his church? I know we don't have a bunch of lazy people here. I know we have a a lot of hard workers. We have diligent people here. And that's awesome, man. I love Prineville. I love the work ethic in Prineville. And yet so often our energies go towards things outside the church And the church herself is neglected. So I ask you, how are you serving the church? And as we end up closing today, not yet, we're not there yet, but as we do get there, just make yourself available to the Lord. Lord, how can I serve? What gifts have you given me? And how can I be a part of rowing this church along? But this church will never be more than we make of it as we make ourselves available So within the children's ministry, within the youth ministry, within discipling new believers, within serving at the oasis, within being a deacon and practically serving and fixing the coffee and cleaning out the coffee pots on a Sunday and, you know, lighting the candles, you know, it's like the candles didn't get lit today. Man, we need someone to step up and be the guy that lights the candles. There's so many things to be done. Lord, how can I be available? How can I be available with the giftings that you've given me? So number one, Paul had been, you know, the Lord had purposed for Paul to be a minister. And I believe biblically, every one of us is to be a minister 
What an honor, huh? It's not just reserved for the paid staff at the church. Number two, there in verse 16, he's also to be a witness. We see he purposed to make you a minister and a witness of two different things, of the things which you've seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. And so from the first day that Paul was saved, Jesus had called him to be a witness. And guess what? From the first day that you were saved, and maybe today will be that day. Today is the day you would get saved. Well, today would be the day that you're a witness for Jesus Christ. The Lord wants to use you to testify and to tell others of what God's done in your life. And don't you just love when new believers who'd been saved for like two or three days tell about how God has come into their life and changed their life and transformed their life? Have you heard those testimonies before? They are exciting, aren't they? The transformation of the Holy Spirit coming into a person's life. But we're to be witnesses. We're to testify. You know, aren't you tired of being a closet Christian? Man, if the homosexuals can come out in public and come out of the closet and, you know, just reveal all that stuff, how much more should a Christian who loves their God be able to say, you know what, I'm coming out of, I'm not a closet Christian, I'm a Christian, and I want the whole world to know about it, and I don't have to be ashamed about loving Jesus. To be a witness means to be testifying of what you've seen and the role that Jesus has played in your life. It's been said that God hasn't called us to be lawyers, arguing with people, trying to convince them into the kingdom. If you can argue someone into the kingdom, then somebody else can argue them out. We're also not called to be jurors, just listening to other people's testimony. We're not called to be judges, sitting supremely and handing out our verdicts, our judgments of condemnation upon people. But we're called to be witnesses. And we read in Revelation chapter 21. Chapter 20, actually. We read about this final court hearing called the Great White Throne Judgment. And there's a judge there. And he is the judge and the jury and the executioner. And there will have been witnesses there. And have you done your part in witnessing Jesus to the world? We've been given a very incredible privilege in the high court of heaven as being witnesses of Jesus to the accused, that they might find freedom, that they might be justified in the high court of heaven. Have you done your part? Are you doing your part? We read there in verse 16 that Paul would witness both of what he had seen And what God would reveal to him. And as Christians, there's a constant revealing of the Lord to him, uh, of himself to us. We need to be open to that. Now, it's nothing new necessarily. It's been said if it's new, that it ain't true. You know, sorry, Joseph Smith, but what you got there on the hills, you know, um, that was new and it wasn't true. But how often is it when we go through the word, there's something we haven't seen before and it ministers to us. You can read John chapter three, 10 times. And every time something new and powerful comes into your heart, the Lord shows you, Lord, what would you reveal to me today about yourself? And don't you love it when people have the Lord reveal himself to them in their quiet times. And then you see them during the day and they're like, look what I read today in Psalms, man. It's awesome. He's the strength of those we call. He's the shepherd, you know, whatever. Man, it's so awesome. 
Maybe you, when you were a non-Christian, do you remember that guy that always come in and always be talking about the Bible and what he'd read? It's a powerful thing as a witness. But we need to be open to the Lord revealing himself to us every day. So often we, you know, we, we serve and we serve and we serve and yet we're never having Jesus pour himself into us. You can't take water out of an empty well. If you want to have that servant thing that we just talked about, then you've got to be poured into by Christ. Paul says in Romans 1.15, as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach, but I've got to have you in me, Lord. The other side of the coin is true as well. You can't be um, you know, having stuff poured into you and poured into you, have the scriptures poured into you, and just, man, you get bloated. You've got to have an outlet. You've got to have a way of pouring yourself out as you're being poured into and there's this great illustration in uh, Israel, and that is of the Jordan River. Way up north in Israel, it, towards Dan, there's a spring of water, and it is a powerful torrent of water coming out of the ground. It's the Jordan River. It's full of life. It's full of fish. It just brings lush vegetation wherever it goes. And it goes down into the Sea of Galilee. You guys know the Sea of Galilee has fish and, you know, it's just great for irrigation and just a wonderful sea that the Jordan River then goes out of that sea down south through Jericho. And just just down kind of by Jerusalem, just east of Jerusalem, it goes into another lake. And yet this lake doesn't have an outlet on the south side of it. The Jordan River doesn't continue. It just pours into this sea and pours into this sea and pours into this sea. And this sea has a name. Anybody know it? The Dead Sea. Fresh water pouring into it and pouring into it, and yet no outlet, and nothing can survive in it. There is nothing surviving there. It is 30 times saltier than the ocean, and it's so salty that when you go in it, you can't sink. You just float. And so many of us, it's a wonderful thing that we are having the word poured into us. And we're at three Bible studies a week and we listen to CSN on the radio and we listen to Christian radio. We got podcasts and we got, you know, blogs that we're reading and we're just, we're, we're having the word poured into us. And yet we're not pouring out. We're not fulfilling that first purpose. The Lord show us those avenues of which we can pour ourselves out. As we Number one, minister and fulfill that purpose that God's had for us since the first day. And number two, as we witness the things that we've seen, how God's changed our lives, how God's changed other people's lives. And as we witness what God's been doing, as he, as he reveals himself to us, five things happen. And we're going to close with these quick five things. And you read of them in uh, verse 18. He sent Paul out, verse 18, to open the eyes, open the eyes of the Gentiles. So as we are ministering, as we are serving, as we are witnessing, God opens men's eyes. First Corinthians chapter two, verse 14 says that the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them. The, the, the natural man out there has blinders on. But as we're serving, as we're ministering, as we're praying, then the Holy Spirit can remove those blinders so they can understand the gospel. John chapter 3 says that unless you've been born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. 
How do men see? How do men have their eyes open? Man, through ministering and witnessing to them, and that as the Holy Spirit reveals himself to them, they can be born again, and they can see the kingdom of God. Have you been born again? How can you be born again? John chapter 3, verse 16. My discipleship group was in John chapter 3 this week, and we just meditated on that, that God so loved the world. That he sent his only begotten son, that if anyone would believe on him, they would not perish, but have everlasting life. If you believe on him, you'll be born again. You'll have your eyes open. Put your faith in Christ. Be born again. In Psalm 119, verse 18, the writer says, Open my eyes, that I can see wondrous things from your law. And let's pray for this church. Let's pray for this community. Let's pray for the people we're in contact with, that the Lord would open their eyes. Number two, turn them from darkness to light. There's a repentance that takes place where once they were in darkness, where once they were in wickedness, they go into a transition, a 180 degree turn into light, into hope, into life. But where there's no repentance, where there's no, where there's still darkness, there's no salvation and there's no birth. There needs to be a repentance of our sins or else we'll die in our sins. And as we minister and as we witness men turn from darkness to light. Number three, and from the power of Satan to God. There's two kingdoms out there. And they're not equal in power. They're not equal in authority, but there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the power of Satan and there's the kingdom of God. And which are you a resident of? Which are you a citizen of? Which do you receive power from? As we're translated out of darkness to light, we're also translated from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Number four, that these people would receive the forgiveness of sins. Man, as we minister, as we witness, we witness that we've been forgiven of sin, then you too can be forgiven of sins. And what a message to tell people. Because we all know in our depravity how hopeless it is, don't we? And we remember that day we heard that you can be forgiven. Man, how beautiful are the feet of those that go out and tell people they too can be forgiven. I had an opportunity this week, and I'm very thankful for the oasis and for this state of the economy and that it's bringing people to their knees. It's bringing people to a place of helplessness. And you get to see that vacuum and you get to put Jesus in it. <laughs> you get to fill that hole with Jesus. And had a gal come in just needing some gas. Really nice lady. Really had a, a good countenance about her. And um, as I was talking with her, she just kind of bubbly and she just you know, shared that she was from Ashland, you know, and she just kind of was like, waved her hands like this, you know, and she shared with me, I'm very spiritual, you know, and I was like, I can tell. In fact, when you said Ashland, I kind of gathered that, you know, and um, just, yes, I'm so, yes, you know, I drive a van and I have writings on my van and I live in the trees. And that's, you know, there's beautiful things about vans and there's beautiful things about trees. So don't get me wrong, but I began to kind of sense this spiritualness about her. And I was like, Lord, how can I share with this lady? How can I tell her about her sin and that she needs you. And the Lord just reminded me of Acts chapter 17. 
of how Athens was just full of idols. And Paul saw that, you know, he began to speak to the Athenians and he said, I I perceive that you're very spiritual, but let me tell you about the one God. Let me tell you about the true God. Let me tell you about the God who's created you and has provided for you and has provided a redemption for you because you're a sinner. Let me tell you about this God that died for you and rose from the dead for you and will judge you. And all of this is borne witness by that God rising from the dead. And I just was able to say, can I just be real with you, Autumn? You're very nice. You're very happy. But I just tell you, there's one God. You know, I just went and just told her the gospel, told her that she was a sinner, told her she needed a savior, told her that Jesus is risen from the dead. I was able to preach the gospel and I was able to tell her, look, I don't know exactly what sins that you have in your life, but you have sins in your life. And they can be forgiven. She was very receptive. And I really hope that, you know, she, she acts upon the gospel. I really hope she obeys the gospel. I hope she comes back. But when was the last time you've told somebody that they can be forgiven of their sins? That you just said, hey, can I just be real with you? You look really nice. You're kind to me. But you're a sinner. And there's one God. And you're going to give an account to him. He's made a way available for you to be forgiven through the blood of the cross and the resurrection of him from the dead. There's forgiveness of sin. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 says that even though we were dead in our trespasses and our circumcision, uh, uncircumcision of our flesh, he made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses and having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We are sinners and we've trespassed and we need to be forgiven. And I just love that he will wipe away all of those sins. He will blot out all of those sins. And number five, the final thing there in verse 18. As we are ministering, as we are serving, as we're witnessing, we will see people receiving an inheritance among those who are sanctified. And it amazing that Jesus took upon himself all of our sin and he gave to us all of his righteousness. And that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, gave all of his inheritance that belonged to him, the Son. He gave it to us. He shared it with us. Peter tells us that there's an inheritance in heaven that's incorruptible. You know, my dad died when I was 19. And at the time we were going through, uh, we were still um, kind of reaping the, the hard things about losing our ranch. And uh, we were probably going to have to be going bankrupt and all this stuff. And, and so then my dad passed away. And so all the social security and all of the inheritance and everything pretty much got taken from us. We had the bank come after my mom as a widower and come after us as kids and and, you know, we lost most of our inheritance. We were able to have a small amount, which I was thankful for. But at a young age, I was able to just say, you know what? My inheritance isn't in this world. We have an inheritance in Jesus. He shared it with us, just like he shared his righteousness with us. And the only way, the only way to... Have your blindness healed 
The only way to turn from darkness to light. The only way to turn from the power of Satan to God. The only way to have your sins forgiven and to receive this inheritance is that you'd be born again. And how do you be born again? You rest in Jesus. Heard the story of a man who was translating the New Testament for an Indian tribe down in uh, South America. And as he was translating the whole New Testament, he was almost done, except that at every part where it said the word believe, there was no word in this native tongue for the word believe. And so he, you know, he, he, (laughs) how can you have a New Testament without the word believe, right? And so he was, he was laboring for the village and he was working and he was working with some guys and traveling through the jungle. And one day they were just so tired of traveling that they sat upon this big, huge log and they just rested upon this big log. And one of the villagers was talking about putting all of his weight on this log and resting on this big log. And the guy goes, that's the word that I can use for believe. It's resting all your weight upon Jesus Christ. And if you'll do that today, you'll be born again. And you'll see the power of darkness broken in your life. You'll see the blinders taken off so that you can see. And you know what? You'll have the joy, the joy of an inheritance that Jesus has given us. Let's go ahead and and put our Bibles aside and Ryan can come on up. And I don't know if you noticed at the end of verse 18 talks about we'll receive an inheritance or Paul would receive an inheritance among those who are sanctified. And then it says, by faith in me. How are we sanctified? How are we set apart from this world? By faith in Jesus, by putting all of our weight on him. Let's go ahead and pray. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, We know that there's those of us here that we're Christians. We name the name of Christ. We love you, Jesus. And but Lord, we've been wondering what our purpose is in life. And Lord, I just really believe that's your word to us today. That from the day you saved us, you called us to be servants. We pray for this church, Lord. We pray for those Christians that probably not on purpose, but they've just been neglecting to serve the body. They've been neglecting to do their share. And where even that's me, Lord, where I haven't been doing my share, Lord, I want to fulfill that purpose that you've saved me for. Lord, where the Christians in this room haven't been being witnesses, They haven't been testifying of your faithfulness in their life. They haven't been testifying of the way you revealed to yourself to them today in your word. Lord, we just want to repent of just idleness, Lord. We want to just make ourselves available today and we seek you today as we worship you. We seek you Pour out your giftings upon us and show us what you've gifted us with. And Lord, may we be used by you to edify the church, to build up the church, to move the church, 
to, to uh, mature the church. Lord, that every part would do its share. Lord, you know the needs of this body. You know the children that need to be taught. You know the phone that needs to be answered. You know the website that needs to be edited and designed. You know the microphone cables that need to be rolled up and the sinks that need to be scrubbed and the chairs that need to be stacked. And and Lord, you know the people that are members of your church. And Lord, just call them to the ministry. Even as we worship you, even as we commune with you. And Lord, for those that are in this place, let's feel like the Lord would just have me prophesy to you right now that if you're in this place and you're not a Christian and your eyes have been blind and you've never understood the Bible, you've never understood God, and there's just a blindness about you. There's a darkness about you. There's sin that hasn't been repented of and confessed and forgiven. There's a heart that hasn't been born again and hasn't just received the inheritance that Christ has given you. And today, if you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to your life right now, respond to him, respond to Jesus, call out to Jesus and just say, Lord Jesus, I'm blind, I'm poor, I'm miserable, I'm naked spiritually, I've got nothing to offer, I don't understand things, I am in darkness, I'm walking in unforgiveness, I'm walking in sin, I don't understand the inheritance. Please, Lord Jesus, I want to be born again. I rest all of my weight upon you, Jesus. If I have any hope in this life, if I have any, if I have any confidence in this life, Lord, I place it all upon the finished work of you on the cross and the victory that you won when you rose from the dead. And if you just cry that out to the Lord, just receive today. Just receive the inheritance. Just receive the sanctification that takes place to all who believe in him. And just let that process work in you right now. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.